From Koningstein Road in the east to Cetus Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, it's Brett Bradigan, editor of your Ojai Magazines, the monthly and quarterly. In this episode, our guest is Mike Milano, the documentary filmmaker of Burning Ojai, which appeared on HBO uh, last year, and also his most recent documentary, which was a feature by Peter Deneen in the current issue of Ojai Quarterly called 137 Shots, an astonishing account of a tragic day in 2012 in which a 23-mile, 23-minute car chase ended tragically. Thanks, Mike. I've really been keen to have you on the podcast because your project 137 Shots is coming out. And it just so happens today, May 25th, when we're recording this, a couple years ago, a very tumultuous event happened, which plays much into this this project with uh, George Floyd being killed in, in that tragic way and all the waves of protests that came out of that. Absolutely. Well, first, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be oh, wow. uh, the Ojai Magazine, especially with the great history of artists in Ojai, to be yeah. sort of counted amongst them. And George Floyd um, certainly weighed into the final cut of the piece. In fact, the film was done um, and ready to come out. And uh, George Floyd was killed, and we had to sort of pull back the reins and think, how do we include this? You know, in a sensitive way. Exactly. And and was it even that summer when the film was first slated to come out? Was the piece too much to even throw into that cauldron of protest yeah. that was going on in America? So we had Feeling to think like about it's that. fuel on the fire. Exactly. Yeah. And we ultimately <clears throat> decided uh, to take another year and uh, figure out how to include that context. And as an artist, the thing I learned is time is always a great resource. And we were able to go back in and make the film better, um, yeah. including that. Well, I think the timing is, well, it, it's always going to be good for projects of this nature. This is very much of, you know, uh, people against the system and and the forces larger than us and just this sense of helplessness sometimes, I feel. There's no, there's no, there's never going to be a time when these aren't relevant issues. Absolutely. Um, it's as evergreen as it gets, to use a, a journalism term. And really, though, the film is uh, America's story in a way, one of America's story dealing with race and class and power mm-hmm. and institutions. So uh, in hindsight, you know, a few months here or there on the release made no difference. Yeah. Well, tell me about getting this project. This incident happened back in 2012. Correct. Is that right? Yeah. So maybe just set up a little bit about that and about... You know, the the tragedy of it, just a backfiring tailpipe and what ensued from that. Um, one thing we say about the film often is it's generations in the making. Um, and that gets to that sort of evergreen nature. But within my own family, 
Um, I grew up within the criminal justice system in the courthouse. My dad is a public defender, now he's a notable criminal defense attorney, and so was my grandfather. And some of my earliest memories are going down to the courthouse. Their offices yeah. were directly across the street, so we'd go down as kids and have lunch and talk to the judges, you know, the bailiffs, the cops. And so I was sort of raised within all of that zeitgeist and criminal justice lore. And then in 2012, I was uh, in graduate school, journalism school, and um, the the chase and shooting happened. And it sort of was just, you know, there wasn't ever really in my, I was so drawn to that story being my hometown, being all the people yeah. I knew. I literally knew many of the players who were involved. It was sort of, um, you know, I was going to go do that story, you know, no matter what. Yeah, you just felt drawn to it right away. You just knew. Was this like part of your schooling even feeling about how do I work my way around the projects what are the pieces how do I put it together absolutely Did you work with your advisors at the school totally um, you know I was in graduate school at UC Berkeley's graduate school of journalism um, everyone has to do their thesis or their master's project um, I was in the documentary program um, and uh, so right away I was going back to Cleveland Thanksgiving of 2013 filming, you know, so, and in this process, I was learning to be a filmmaker, learning to be a journalist and sort of in the hottest cauldron possible, you know, yeah. and how do trial we, by fire? Exactly. And how do we navigate the access and the reportage and the sources? And on top of that, how do I film this? You know, I was learning the trade of cinematography yeah. and editing sound uh, design at the same time. Well, you probably come in and give me some tips because I got I got to learn some things. But here we are. Um, now, the sources and everything. Oh, well, I wanted to tell you how fun it was for me to see Connie Schultz in this because I, I just used to read her column every every week. And she's quite a, not just a Pulitzer Prize winning writer, but just a character. Um, Connie really, um, when she agreed to do an interview and be part of the piece, the, the term that some of the producers on the film said that she provided us the terra firma sort of the ground to stand yeah, just on be able to say that she's part of the project it gives the credibility to get other people on board yeah. absolutely and just as that sort of solid journalism voice you know all these mm -hmm. sorts of documentaries you see there's just journalists talking about the reporting they've they've done yeah. and so connie was our journalist in the piece and um i'd had a relationship with her prior but also it was a number of other relationships in cleveland that i was sort of drawing upon to help convince her to do it and um ultimately that included sending her a rough cut an earlier cut of the film she wasn't in the original cut and uh convincing her to be a part of it and so the way she told it to me is I sent her that cut and she was sitting watching it uh, and Sherrod was at the kitchen her, table. Her husband, uh, United States Senator Sherrod Brown, yes. And he, uh, she says that he wasn't watching it at first, but there was this moment where whatever he set down whatever he was working on and came over to watch the film with her. Yeah. And that's when she sort of realized we have to be a part of this. Well, it's certainly... Um, like the... I'm trying to... The magisterial viewpoint or... There's a term that I'm not coming up with now because my brain don't work good. But um, to have that sort of uh, deus ex machina or something to, to uh, give you the context and provide sort of the navigation as people go through the intricacies of this horrifying incident. Back to the, the moment when it first happened. Now, these... The cops were outside of a courthouse, was it? So the uh, in Cleveland, it's called the Justice Center, and it's a big, giant 
a gothic building and it houses the county jail, it houses the police headquarters, and it houses all the courts. So yeah. they're all in one spot. And um, on Euclid Avenue, which is right outside the Justice Center, there are two cops uh, just sitting outside, leaning on the trunk of their car. As they do. And uh, Tim and Melissa drove by in their 1979 Chevy Malibu, which was um, actually Tim's brother's car that he had gifted him. And uh, the car backfires. The old carburetor engine backfires in front of the cops. And... Officer Nan uh, says, gunfire, they just shot at us. The other yeah. officer had claimed to smell the gunpowder, and immediately they call it in. You know, shots fired outside the Justice Center. And they gave pursuit right away. Got right in his car. You can see it in the film. Uh, he gets right in his car at that moment and starts chasing him. And uh, eventually over one-third of the 1,400-person Cleveland police force was involved in the chase. Yeah, 60 or 70 cars. Yep, 60, I think 66 cars at its peak, but each car's got two people in it, you know, 120-plus officers. Uh, it was going through seven different channels of radio. Eventually, there are officers from neighboring cities, East Cleveland, Branton, all, uh, the county sheriff, all involved. And the, um, and the chase went on for how long? Chase went on for 24 minutes, 24 Jeez. miles, all over Cleveland, um, in and out of Cleveland and eventually ended in East Cleveland, which is a different city. And this was a whole jurisdictional uh, piece later on and, and immediately who was doing the investigation, but ended in a parking lot of uh, East Cleveland Middle School. And uh, Tim and Melissa, they pull into the parking lot and they try to come back around and they meet all the cops pouring in on them and oh, were trapped. And, uh, and, you know, a lot of people, you know, Tim and Melissa didn't know there was 66 cars behind them. You know, who knows what they saw. Um, you know, everyone said they, they should have stopped. And yeah, they, I hate it when I, all these should have, you should have done this. You mm -hmm. If you're not in that situation, how do you know how you're going to react? Right. I just, I just find that like a level of arrogance about how other people should have, what they should have done and how they should have reacted. And if you weren't guilty, you would have done this. Mm -hmm. And so on. you don't know how you're going to act in those high pressure situations. Especially considering, um, that there was any, uh, an event prior to this, an hour before, where a cop had pulled over Tim and Melissa and a cop who had a reputation of abusing the homeless people at yeah. that shelter. Um, so we don't know what happened there. We know that officer lied about it during multiple interviews until they called him out uh, because you could see them on the surveillance camera. So we don't know what if, if had happened prior. And how they were, how vulnerable they were feeling. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Mansfield Frazier, um, who passed away right before the film came out, you know, he said they didn't stop because they wanted to live for another 23 minutes. Yeah, that, so. they probably had some sense that that was it. Yeah, so um, just all around um, tragic, tragic um, incident, but really like the 137 shots. And, and eventually what we're leaving out here is one of the officers, you know, they, they meet him in the school parking lot and 13 officers are firing into the car. And yeah, each of those multiple angles. Exactly. They're, they're pretty much in a circle around the car. And the officers think they're being shot at by the people in the car when it's really the it officers. It's a friendly fire. Exactly. It's a crossfire situation. And then it finally comes to an end when one officer, uh, Michael Brillo, jumps upon the hood of the car and fires the final 15 shots straight down through the windshield um, to sort of put an end to it. He fired 49 bullets total, the 50th bullet. Well, I definitely want to talk about him because he's another one that you see this horrible incident, but you also see several things. One, the PTSD of his service mm -hmm. in Iraq, was it, or was it Afghanistan? Yeah, it was Iraq. And the, 
just the blue wall of how it just goes up and it's just like shuts everything else down. There's no room for understanding the complexities of what happened. And it's just really complicated and tragic from all all angles. So that's what is um, really separates this case from the countless other, you know, deaths at the hands of police. And I say, you know, Brillo on top of that hood firing away. It's really the most warped you know, representation of so many threads of American culture crisscrossing, whether it is the police culture, whether it's, you know, the veterans on the force, whether it's sort of this obsession or really just over tolerance of violence in American culture, eventually leading into how the courts handle it. Um, So we were able to unpack so much culturally from this one instance. Yeah, it was Um, a great entry point to all these reflections and insights very uh discomforting light on american culture and uh we were really able to examine the courts you know the cops the unions uh the veterans and sort of the larger war culture in america and it's really and when we say generations in the making it isn't just the access that took generations to garner the circumstances of the russell and williams family were generations in the making michael brillo the main cop third generation cop third generation veteran generations in the making same with the prosecutors that go way back tim mcginty the prosecutor who had heroes in the in the da office for generations prior so it really you know when we talk about evergreen and timeless stories um this is the one you know well you must have known it right away huh yeah i mean just uh i remember my dad calling me and saying you know you wouldn't believe it 66 cars 137 shots i mean i remember orlando bagwell was one of my great great mentors um who had just taken over the documentary program at uc berkeley and he's one of the original producers and directors on eyes on the prize sort of the seminal civil rights documentary series and i remember showing some of the early interviews in class and him just going oh my gosh you know and he said right this one's going to go all the way and sort of right in graduate school we knew that the film was going to go all the way, meaning it was going to become yeah, a feature. So this is a, 10 years in the making. 10 years in the making, and, and there's so much to unpack about why it took that long. But simply, you know, two years later, Tamir Rice, 12-year-old boy, is killed in a Cleveland park. Um, yeah. Same this police force. Like, that just really brought a light to it. I remember vividly the horror and in the context of this incident that just happened before. It's it just had happened. So it's the same prosecutors, the same union boss. It's, of course, the same surrounding community. So it's all of the intensity around just got cranked up to the nth degree, as if it could have been more intense uh, than the 137 shots incident. So we were really able to see how the individuals operating within the system, the prosecutor and the union boss in particular, how the leverage changed when there were two events in the air. Um, so waiting for those two cases to sort of come to a conclusion and the Tamir Rice still hasn't totally come to a conclusion that took years and in the midst of all of this Cleveland is having sort of this you know Cuyahoga County is this seminal electoral county in Ohio and as Mm -hmm. Ohio goes so goes the nation and the RNC and Trump's rise is coming through Cleveland you know a summer later and all these issues are still on the surface unresolved in Cleveland so creatively it was how do we include that but we knew we had to include it so part of that complexity is why it took so long ultimately to make and figure out how to get it right I love the way that you incorporated the RNC Trump speeches through the eyes of the patrons at the bar, mm-hmm. just how this was the background chatter, uh, just 
what people, the, the vibe, the zeitgeist yeah. of that moment, mm-hmm. really, you could see everything coming together. Right. And, and we might be jumping ahead with your questions, but just unpack that moment a little bit. Cornell West was speaking the same day. So you had these. Oh, I'd asked if, uh, if there were that. Yeah. Because it seemed so tidy, like such, you know, like so perfect. It, yeah, and it was. I mean, it was perfect in a sense of showing the two sides of America. Um, and it was happening. I mean, the reason he was there was to yeah. sort of cut at Olivet Institutional Baptist Church, which is a historic black American church. It was Martin Luther King's northern home base. So he was there to sort of counteract all of the Republican National Convention that was going on. So in terms of the production, it was me and my partner, Damien Eduardo, so a Cleveland guy whose father is a Cleveland police chaplain. Um and we're running from all of these events, you know, from one to the other, because yeah. we knew there was something here of juxtaposing them all together. And what was the, you know, the process of getting access and so forth? Well, well particularly Michael Brelo, this uh-huh. cop really didn't seem like there was much in it for him to cooperate with you. How did that happen? Where Who, who got, got a hold of him for you? So um, it's an interesting question about you know, journalism and storytelling. And you're right, he didn't have much to gain, perhaps from the outside perspective, but from his perspective, he's thinking, you know, I'm being portrayed as the most, you know, evil man alive. And I want to have my side of the story out there. Everyone sort of wants to tell their story. You know, that's what I've found. Everyone wants to tell their story. It's getting them to trust you and maneuvering into that access. And how it happened was, So there was like sort of a chain of command within the police access side of this. There's a guy who appears in the film briefly whose name is Jim Simone, a super cop in Cleveland. He, um, Vietnam vet. Exactly. Sort of the mirror story of Michael Brillo. But Jim Simone has issued more tickets than any officer in American history. He has been in, he has killed more men on duty than any officer in American history. And for 30 years, he was the ultimate hero of the Cleveland yeah. police. You know, he was a, a celebrity. The, the media, lo- the media loved him. Super cop. And he gave great copy, um, like he does in the film. But anyways, I had known him from when I was a little kid going yeah. to the courthouse and he's the most famous cop. And my dad said, you got to meet Jim Simone. So he had known me growing up. So when I was in graduate school, I reached out to Jim Simone and said, let me do an interview. It was literally the first interview I did. Um, and sort of once, uh, and a, he loves to talk, you know, loves yeah. to talk. He wanted the film to be about him. Um, but once I had sort of him on board, he called the police union president, Steve Loomis. And yeah, there's this saying big, with, uh, yeah, big, big Steve Loomis. And there's a saying with Simone, it's like, he's like the Pope of the police. If he touches you on the head, you can go anywhere you want. Yeah. And we found that to be true. So he kissed the ring. Yeah. I, I humored him, you know, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> He calls the union boss, Steve Loomis, and then I'm, I'm at the union hall with Steve Loomis, the belly of the beast, members only. There's a bar downstairs, the patrol car lounge, and I'm sitting there talking to Loomis. And I'll just say, you know, interviews, you don't show up and put a camera in his face. I met with these oh, guys no. a dozen times, you know, coffees, lunches, and, you know, mm-hmm. before they would go on camera. And uh, while I'm sitting in the uh, union hall, Michael Brillo walks in. I go, yeah. oh, my gosh, there's the guy. You know, and um, you know, I say I'm Mike Milano, and I'm and I'm a journalist. I'm a reporter. You cover all sides of the Big story. News. Yeah, I mean, so there is something a little bit in the zeitgeist now about do you even you know do you platform these folks? I was you know taught by the journalism school of journalism where you get 
you report with everyone. Um, yeah. So I see Brillo, and I said, hey, I'm Mike Milano. He goes, Mike Milano, he goes, uh, you wrestled 160 pounds at Rocky River High School. And as oh it turns God. out, Brillo, who's a year older than me, wrestled the same weight class at a neighboring high school. Oh, and so, so I had this reputation, yeah. and I, I went on to wrestle at Michigan. And so in their world, being a, a state champion wrestler is like the ultimate currency. Yeah. So that was what got him talking to me. And ultimately, Brillo you know, wanted to tell his story. He was, of course, was completely banned from doing any media outside of myself. And for the longest time, the union didn't even know he was talking to me. Really? Um, but it was just his sense of... I wouldn't want to get sideways with the Loomis, the union boss. He is a very tough-looking He's guy, a And he's a powerful figure. And, and at the end of it, you know, there was sort of this sense that Loomis won. And it was really... Uh, indicative of the power and resilience of the police you know because you see loomis in the film you go this guy's outrageous but his job no He's bill in the brillo case for his clients exactly and those are the cops and they all won so yeah. after tamir rice and michael and the 137 shots not one cop faced any sort of criminal i mean they faced charges but no convictions nothing the union yeah. sort of made it all go away in a sense. So Loomis is a very powerful figure, and um, I've spent countless hours with him, and uh, he used to call and text all the time in the process, but I have not heard from him since the film came out. Oh, you think he didn't like it? Um, you know, I think the one thing about the film is people that on that side of the divide might look at Steve Loomis and go, yes, yes, that's right, yeah. that's right. And he might look at it and go, I'd look great in that film. Yes. I just don't know, you know. But I think that's something the film is effective at is uh, there's sort of an entry point for every perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one of the things that most impressed me was it didn't – you don't come away from it like it's just a polemic against police mm -hmm. or that it's, you know, an indictment of the criminal justice system either because – these are complicated issues. A lot going on. These things happen in a flash. Right. And then it takes years and years to parse out. Yeah. It's really incredible the work that gets done. Oh, the one thing I wanted to talk about is how this system works where these cops go into the service and then they come out. Or they, you know, mm -hmm. want to be cops their whole life. They go into the service. I was a GI for six years. Many of the security police, I was in the Air Force in uh Military police, they see it as, you know, they wanted to be cops their whole lives. They go into the military to do that, and then they go right into it. But the missions are so different. Military and law enforcement, there doesn't seem to be a lot of transferable skills, but it's just how people think about it. Exactly. And, I mean, talk about mission creep. And you yeah. hear that in the rhetoric about how Michael Brela specifically talked about his job. And that's the line that's so poignant in the film where he says, I dreamed about being a cop my whole life. Yeah. You know, and he went in the military. And um, you, we often talk about how dangerous it is to have military-grade weapons, you know, injecting uh -huh. the police Militarization department. of the police yeah. and these armored personnel vehicles and oh it's crazy and so it's that but even more uh perverse i might argue is this mindset of an occupying force i mean michael brillo um i mean it's the classic story you know remember where i was on 9 11 just like me i remember being in you know science class second period michael brillo tells the same story but that night he decides to go join the marines go get shipped off uh to iraq and his unit suffered more casualties than any american unit abroad since Vietnam, you know, that 49 members of Northeast Ohio um, who were 
killed. And since yeah, they've those started, are some poignant portions of the of the film. So exactly, and then he comes back and uh, joins the police. And at the time, and still today. Um, Police departments, you take your your test and stuff, and they grade you on a scale. There's multiple different things, and you get bonus points for being a veteran. Yeah, you know. And so we really have to think about this. Is where the film, I think, it's it's more than these surface level issues. It's really a cultural thing within America about what is our relationship with violence. How do we define strength? And I would argue that our, both of our, our relationship with violence is completely off the rails. We see it every day. But also, how do Americans define strength? Mm-hmm. And our idea of strength is sort of the man in uniform with the gun. And, yeah, and that's what Wayne. it means to be strong. When I would argue, and this is why the Martin Luther King quote comes right at the center point of the film, is ultimately he's the strong man who's nonviolent, the courageous man who's nonviolent. Because it takes more courage to... Not fight back. And that's just been completely lost in the American zeitgeist, completely lost. And I think if the film is about anything, it's about sort of reassessing what our basic virtues are as a society. But post 9-11, there's been the complete fetishization of men in uniform. It was literally their strategy, you know, don't criticize the troops. And it carried over to police departments. And you really hear the rhetoric of an occupying force. Um, Not members of the community who are stewards of its goodwill through their web of relationships and that gumshoe policing. The Broken Windows, are you familiar with that James Q. Wilson essay? Um, uh, You're not familiar with the concept, but I think they still teach it in the police academy, Mm -hmm. which I'm glad to hear. But that idea that, you know, somebody starts with turns, jump and turnstiles and then... You know, you, you sh- shut down on that, and then all of a sudden the murder rate goes down. And trying to find those links between what kind of, you know, you, you put up with the climate control. Mm-hmm. And right. the cops seem to have, they don't, it's, I think that military background is really at the root of much of it. I think, yeah, I think um, it's creeping into every section of American culture, this militarization, you know, and I don't know how we put the brakes on it, but just specifically with the police, it comes right from Brillo's mouth. The police are, it's his last lines in the film. The police are trying to become paramilitary. You know, in Iraq, I was trained to push through the enemy. He's, that's the reason he jumped yeah, on the hood. So everybody's but, an enemy. Yeah, he's literally citing his training to push through the enemy um, in his final lines of the film, and we really just have to think about you know, what that means, you know, for the police to be acting in that way. To be just antagonistic with the very people that they're supposed to be helping and And protecting and serving. Exactly. And again, I think the film, there's deeper virtues of of American culture at play here that we've sort of lost track of. And that's the Cornell West scene juxtaposed to Trump. I mean, uh, integrity, honesty, decency, and courage. And what does that mean in light of today's culture and in yeah. light of the police specifically? And just in, in terms of some of the legwork, the reporting legwork in the film, you see the uh, interrogations of the officers. You know, it's mm-hmm. the whole first third of the film is is their interrogations with the Bureau of Criminal Investigation. And there are over 150 of those that we went through. Yeah, there's a lot of ta- you watched a lot of tape. Huh? Years and years of watching that tape. But the thing that really shone through is. There is a real lack of honesty, integrity, you know, character, courage. I mean, when you start unpacking all of those and their statements against one of each other, it's there's just like anything goes, say anything. And you even see the, yeah. the attorney nudging them, nudging yes. them, say this, say this. And uh, to see it so clearly like that, again, it takes an instance where there's 200 officers involved to make it crystal that clear. Was, yes, that you was know? incredible. So, uh 
that's as we were realizing what is this film really about it was sort of became well what are our because it's so much deeper than the police it goes well what are our basic virtues of society in relation to strength in relation mm-hmm. to violence and the truth and the honesty exactly because it's easy if it's just one or two cops to get their story straight but when you have that many it's going to get complicated and that's what made there, it. there were a few cops that a uh, police that gave indicting testimony against Brelo. And I thought that took a particular form of courage, even though it was probably getting some kind of a deal to get their own asses off the line. But if they just would have held, it wouldn't have made any difference anyway. But what what happened to those cops after the Absolutely. After so there was one, actually, just one, Brian Sabolik, um, who was given immunity to testify. Um, and he was culturally blackballed. And I met with him a few times um, at the Red Lantern Bar in Camps Corner, which is the near west side the Irish Catholic stronghold of Cleveland. Um, and he was telling me how, you know, no one will talk to me. All the cops hate me, you know. Yeah. Um, so he's he, still on the force. He did get his job back. He was fired and he was one of the guys who got his job back. And I believe he's still on the force. Now, I haven't talked to him in a number of years, but I would assume he's still on the force. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he faced tremendous blowback. Um, like locker room fights type stuff. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Very much like NYPD Blue with uh, Sipowitz and such. Like, yeah. I uh, just, you know, that, that I'm trying to think of that. Uh, so, there was a section in Thin Blue Line where they're just talking about how they got to have each other's backs or the, everything's going to fall apart. And they go into the jobs with that mentality and it just takes one little incident and then it's just piles up. And this... Your project, 137 Shots, just lays it all out in all its glory because there's so many people involved in this incident. I mean... Yeah, that's what makes it sort of truly unique to put all of this on display. I mean, as, you know, we started working on this film in in 2012, 2013, and there were the waves of the Ferguson summer, summer, the George Floyd summer, countless killings in the midst of all of it and um one is just a reporter i was like oh my gosh our story speaks to all of this and just having the discipline to hold back until it was ready but also there's something about the 137 shots that sort of as you're saying lays it bare in a way that you know one or two officers incident doesn't lay it bare Uh in the same way rashomon exactly so we sort of knew we had the one um because of that and what i mean by that is we had the one to really make it indisputable you know, yeah. undeniable what was happening here culturally. Um, and I think that what the film does effectively, because there's an entry point for every perspective and because it goes from just reportage to art on an emotional level is even if you're Michael Brillo's family, by the end of that film, you got a pit in your stomach. Yes. You know, when you see all the officers talking well, and if contradicting. Have, if he had to re- take that moment back, do you think he would have done the same thing? No, I don't think he would have done the same thing. Um, well, he, actually, he talks about it, how he relives it every time he goes about to go to sleep. It's well, just there he is back at that moment, he, the trauma of that. He probably, be. actually, I take that back. He probably would have done the same thing because he wasn't consciously, this was his subconscious cultural training that led yeah. him to the hood of that car. It was generations of, uh, you know, sort of indoctrination that put him on the hood of the car. He wasn't thinking about it. He didn't have yeah. a choice. Which I, a reflex. Exactly. He didn't have a choice. Now, there was always this process of, as we were, you know, spending time with Brila, like, 
could by the end of this, could he have the awakening and be the one who's like, everything I learned was wrong, yeah. you know, and I'm anti-police and anti-violence and, We gotta you know, fix this, America. And, Wake up. And there were sometimes, like I used to describe it as the sun breaking through the clouds where it's like you could almost see his head, his brain heading in that direction, but in the end, the clouds closed in and it was never that. It was always just the absolute police dogma, you know, and it speaks to how powerful the indoctrination is that everything he went through, he still didn't have the strength at the end to say, maybe my, everything I believe my whole life was backwards, you know, and it's, 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 it's wrecked me, you know, as a person, it's wrecked my family, but he couldn't get there because it's really ingrained in his sort of cultural DNA. And but it's, it's half also, of America. It's a band of brothers and sisters and that, you know, the, the tribal aspect. If he steps out of that, he's going to be all on his own. Like it, the exactly. Gave the, they got the immunity to testify. And like his family, too. You know, and I was oh. around with his family. We had an interview with his dad, which was just so inflammatory, we couldn't even put it in. Whoa. But he'd be turning on his family. You know, he's a oh, third-generation yeah. cop. He just couldn't break out of that. And Brilo, what I say is like, they're all, this used to be in the treatment, the last line, they're all Brilos. You yes. know, there's, I was raised in this community. It's part of the reason I was able to do it. I know and it get the so access. well. Exactly. Yeah. I'm near West Side. You know, I grew up a few blocks from where Brilo lives. Um, again, my grandmother was a custodian in the Justice Center. We're all Irish, not Catholic. But, you know, yeah. grew up within that community. So I know these guys. And the way Brilo thinks and acts is not unique. It's the norm in yes. that community. Well, I highly recommend everybody check this out because you really do get to see the other side of the veil of this these situations that are just so common. I mean, we just had another tragic shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and you know, it's like this culture of violence in this country. I know as they always talk about, oh, Canada, they have just as many guns and you know, one tenth or less the murders, but they didn't have the Wild West the way that we did. They had Mounties were the first people into their frontier areas. So there was law enforcement there before there were settlers of that rough justice that goes on in this country. And every one of these crimes is a form of justice. People feel they're meeting out justice. It isn't just random sociopaths that are just killing people. It's people who feel aggrieved and they want to get even. Mm -hmm. And even in this situation, you felt like... Even if these people didn't shoot at them, they're running away. They were evading, and there's got to be consequences for that. Absolutely. It's just uh, if they had complied, you know, it wouldn't have happened. That's what you'll hear, and it's, well, the, yeah, I guess well, we it's don't a death know exactly. one thing. Counterfactuals are a right. waste of time. Absolutely. But you're really hitting it on the head that it's an American cultural thing. You know, and, and what is strength? But also, there's another aspect in here beyond just you know, what is strength. It's the police have really always enforced a uh, class divide, you know, yeah. a racial divide in America. And, um, you All know, cops that's are how, Irish. That's how uh, really so much of the support amongst the police, especially sort of amongst the far right wing, it's, and this is subliminal, they'll never say it, but the police are the one enforcing that class divide. And it's yeah. not the shootings that, you know, they're so egregious and they get the headlines, but every day cops are issuing tickets to poor people, putting them in the system. And once you get caught up in the grinding gears of the criminal justice system. Well, there's another system, documentary there is how expensive it is to be poor. Because you've got, you know, these 
mandatory counseling sessions, you know, 135 bucks here. Um, and it's just like the fines and how it compounds if you don't absolutely pay and you the, never get out of the system. The South Carolina shooting, and I apologize that I'm not remembering the victim's name as he was running Walter away. Walter Scott. Walter Scott. He was he had uh, overdue child payments, you know, oh, alimony, and he was afraid to go back into prison. So again, it's this every day issuing tickets to poor people, filling the prisons. You know, that mm-hmm. is the class divide, the racial divide in America. And so there's the consent decrees. I think there are 36 consent decrees during the Obama Holder administration. And the Ferguson one in particular really highlighted how essentially the police and the courts are revenue, drive the revenue to run the city, you know. And, Especially and, in Ferguson, it was like one of those uh, speed trap type Absolutely, yeah, but, but I'd argue that's every city. I mean, they go down to the, the Justice Center and the county jail. It's just filled with poor people who couldn't pay their tickets, who got caught up in, in something. So we really have to, like, look at that. And that's what the cops are really doing. They're enforcing this class divide. They always mm-hmm. have been. And that's not to say there aren't good cops out there doing of good course. work. Of course. I mean, there they are. all do it for the... I mean, even the worst cops are doing it for the right reasons, mm-hmm. or at least they start out that yeah. way. Well, and it's just, again, it's it's like, you know, I say Michael Brillo never had a choice. You know, it's how, right. it's, in, yeah. it's how we are indoctrinated in America. It's generations in the making. Yeah. And people just feel in their, you know, their hearts that, you know, this is just who they should be. I, I don't even think there's that much, you know, intellectual, you know, self-examination happening. It's just how we're no, raising men in America. No, I think they'd be afraid to do that if they start picking at the scabs. Yeah. And hopefully that's what the film does. Yeah. You know, we always used to say that this film is aimed at red state America. We don't need to convince, yeah. you know, the people on Not the, singing to the choir. Exactly. But there's something that the film does where because it is really um, a really cinematic and narrative film, and it's it's really a good piece of art, you know, podcast panels, yeah. I often say, you know, they're not going to change anyone's heart and soul. You know, that's what art does. You know, it mm-hmm. hits you in the gut. So our film was always, well, if we can, you know, Trojan horse people in with the tools of cinema and narrative, you know, we can hit them in the gut in a way that might move them off, yeah. you know, off, change their minds a little bit. I think that's how it happens. Just so gradually people don't even realize that they're reflecting on things that were just, uh, they didn't even Absolutely. Question. And that's yeah. the film. It's, oh my gosh, I know Michael Brillo. You know, if you or yeah. I know, I know 10 guys like Michael Brillo. I know, my cousins. Yeah. You know, and my, maybe my brother's a cop. Maybe that isn't maybe we should think about these things, you know? And yeah. uh, so that's how you just inch people along and, and progress can be made, hopefully. And that was that was ultimately the goal of the piece. Yeah. Well, I wonder if when you were doing your research and so on, there must have been ideas or programs or something about reforming the police and the culture and, you know, the criminal justice system. How do we get beyond the these well-etched grooves that we have. How do we, how do we start over? Is any programs out there that are interesting? It's, and well, it's going to be really hard again because one of my theses is, is that policing is the most entrenched and resilient of all American institutions. And you yeah. look at us, the American institutions sort of crumble, you know, at least metaphorically, one by one. 
The police, again, after the Ferguson summer, after the George Floyd summer, are just as strong as ever. The rhetoric, you know, the law and order rhetoric, yeah. the crime fact, spree. They might even feel emboldened. Exactly. I saw that happen, you know, yeah. after the Ferguson summer. And that, that wave sort of receded and, and nothing had happened to the police, mm-hmm. you know. And this is through Steve Loomis. I see him. He was the most powerful actor in all of this because the cops always win. And then with the election of Donald Trump, and again, I would argue that Trump's the, the singular campaign issue was policing. Maybe not literally, but that's all yeah. it was, was race and police. And I was at the convention speech. It was all about the police. That's the scene in the bar. Yeah. So what they did is they consolidated power after Ferguson. They yeah, got but... more power. They pulled back every consent decree, you know, the Sessions uh, DOJ. So, and I've seen it happen again and again. So policing is so resilient, more resilient than any other American institution, I would argue. So to get to your point, it's going to be really hard to change. Mansfield Frazier, our amazing narrator of the film. You yeah, know, the moral conscience of the film. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, His thing was, well, we just need to, you know, there's simple ways to start. More women on the police force. You know, more people coming from the communities. You know, these are simple things um, that can be done, I think, to help curb some of what we're seeing you know the uh idea of community policing which they talk about in the film but really not just as sort of uh lip service you know we need to be going in and recruiting officers from the neighborhoods where they're meant to police and more women like there's data that says the more women on your police force the less violent it is um you know aside from that Again, there's a we have a gun problem in America where there's 500 million, 400 million guns, and so the police will always yeah. fall. What and there's this interesting irony there. You know, Loomis, the union boss, says there's so many guns out there. What are we supposed to do? Uh-huh. Yet at the same time, he's like the biggest gun advocate. Like, don't you of dare course. curb Try our gun rights. My, so that's one you thing. Cry it from my cold dead exactly. fingers. Exactly. So one thing that would protect the police is less guns and and gun uh, regulation. But of course, there's this disconnect in the minds of you know the the it's, right it's and the astonishing cops. you look at the shooting in Uvalde some of the first statements from politicians are well we got to tr- arm and train these teachers yeah the only thing to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with it, uh, a nice speech and a proper demeanor it's just the most backwards even just logically you know to put more more guns is the answer um and you know it's really it's so uh, disheartening you know when you do a piece like this and and you just see the acceleration again it's about our tolerance of violence as a society so when people say well how do we fix the police for me it's like this is so deep culturally and to come to the rfk speech in the beginning of the film when he says only a cleansing of our whole society can wash this sickness from our souls it's kind of how i feel you know i mean that's why the speech is there the mindless menace of violence too often we honor we honor swagger and bluster and the wielders of force you know yes. those are the opening lines of the film so and again and that used to be the last line of the film the last line used to be only a cleansing of our whole society can wash the sickness of our souls. But it was Alex Gibney who's like, yeah, let's move that let's up front out. and mm-hmm. move. And so then the final lines of the speech are to seek our own advancement in search of the advancement of all. And so it really just gets into the how do we fix the police is like as simple as what are the virtues of our society? And it's, it's very Christian stuff. Ironically, love your brother. You know, uh, what are you doing for the least of these type things, which fly in the face of all right wing politics. But that's where we are. Yeah. Well, what what now with this film? I know you just Netflix just released it May whatever. Mhm. Yeah, and Netflix now. released it December 15th. It's been oh, 15th. it's been seen um 
by millions and millions of people, yeah. you know, uh, over eight fi- figures. I'm not allowed to give the exact numbers. Yeah, they're tight with numbers uh-huh. on Netflix, yeah. But it's been seen by millions of people all over the world, you know, 165 yeah. countries. There's, you know, we have a, a review in the Hindustan Times, which is one of the largest newspapers in India, 36 million person circulation. It's been seen in New Zealand, Chile, Spain. So that getting this out there, you know, that's the ultimate that's it. You know, nothing more needs to be done. And, and especially even in Cleveland, where the film, as you might imagine, caused quite a stir, you know, and hopefully it's inching, you know, those folks who say there's nothing wrong with the police to thinking, oh, maybe we can do something about this. Um, so that's been, you know, very gratifying that the film got out there after all these years and people are seeing this story. Yeah. Because when you see the lists of policing victims, you know, you never see Tim and Melissa because it happened right before sort of yeah. this becoming the issue du jour. So even today, when you see the list of victims, you never see Tim and Melissa, and that's why the other opening line of the film from Alfredo Williams, the brother of Melissa, is this case should have gone worldwide, and now it has gone worldwide. Yeah. So so that was the purpose. Um, in terms of PR and, and, and awards, obviously it's a very tricky film, you know, sort of, uh, but... Um, we did, uh, Netflix did submit it for seven different Emmys. Um, wow. Yeah. Fingers but, crossed. Yeah. Fingers crossed. So I don't want to say anything more of that in case none of it comes to fruition because yeah. you never know, you know, what films get rewarded in, in Hollywood. Don't get me started. Yeah. Well, there's a whole <laughs> political shenanigans and that goes on with that, but yeah. I really wish you well. So while you were making this project, something happened about a month after you moved to Ohio. You want to tell us a little about that? Sure. Um, so we moved to Ojai uh, in early October of 2017, and uh, baby on the way. And we were living in Berkeley, where all this started at Berkeley, and um, needed more space. And, and discovered Ojai through uh, what I call the aligning of the stars, as many people yeah. describe their arrival in Ojai. And um, so I'm, you know, we're working on a thing. And then December 4th, 2017, about a mile above our house, the Thomas fire kicked off. And I was literally exploded practically. Yep. I was hanging. I remember, you know, I was on the roof hanging Christmas lights. I'm like, gosh, it sure is windy. You know, it sure is windy. And then, uh, you know, within an hour or two of that, the uh, flames were rolling over the ridge on our house. And, you know, I'm a journalist, so I really have, you know, I've been following sort of the wildfire story. And a big threat of my journalism is you know i think the biggest story is the environment you know yeah. even bigger than the police there's two biggest stories but the environment's even bigger and this you know a month before 40 people had been killed in sonoma county in a wildfire yes so this is fresh on my mind and i'm like oh my you know so we just with a we see it coming never forget it grab the baby run out of the house and my neighbor grab Jared, the baby then the camera well, the thing is, I didn't grab the camera. Oh. I didn't have time. Had I, I just, I didn't have time to grab the camera. Um, you know, that's why so much of that footage is cell phone footage. Um, you know, yeah. and that, and what became the film Burning Ojai. But we ran out of the house. Um, didn't even have time. I couldn't find my wallet. Now that's partially because we had no time, and it's partially because I can never find my wallet. Yeah. But uh, so we run out of the house, and um, with really the fire right behind us, and the streets backed up. There's horses on the loose. It was chaos, and there are many stories that are you know similar to mine. Everyone in Upper Ohio, pretty much. Yeah. But we were really sort of on the front line when the uh, thing blew on the top of Koningstein. The only thing between that outlet or that telephone pole in our house is about an acre of just dry scrub at the time so came right at our house 
Um, we get out of there. We end up in the Lemon Tree Hotel in Santa Barbara. It's raining ash. Um, and we originally were told that our house was gone, you know, and they were told they saw the flames, uh, you know, eating our house alive. But the fire department saved it. It's because we're the last fire hydrant on the street and right next to fire station 20, they just pulled in there and saved our house. I think three of our, four of our neighbor's houses, uh, burned down. Um, so that happened. We get back to the house two weeks later. We're in Santa Barbara for a week, you know, various rumors, you know, like everyone was dealing with and, uh, sort of as the moment that we saw our house to survive, I'll still never forget this either, you know, being like, Oh my gosh, it's there. Um, then sort of my filmmaking and journalism instincts, you know, kicked right into gear. And um, we started, I just started uh, recording everything. And at the end of the street, you know, I hadn't known any of my neighbors. We, I didn't know anyone yeah, in the community at that point. Them. Yeah. But then at the end of our street. Trauma was, bonds. Yes. And those are the strongest bonds. Yeah. Um, you know, my best friends in Ohio to this day, you know, were because of that incident when we, we met. So at the end of our street is the relief station. And what we witnessed was really this beautiful coming together, mm-hmm. you know, of Which the community. Which you showed in the film, really. It made me proud of Ohio. Yeah, me too. It, and um, so, you know, we're filming, you know, I got to work on that film and sort of gathering the stories of everyone. Really, every interview on that film is from a person who lives within like a couple block yeah. radius, more or less, of, of our home. Um, and uh, was able to bring it to HBO. And, and what they felt was so poignant about the film was that it was so on the ground with the community. You know, it wasn't a journalist dropping it's in. It's like embedded. Exactly. And the, the term they used was very sort of democratic, you know, with yeah. the people. Um, and so I had, you know, that sort of was, that came out in 2020, and that was sort of my first film to come out. But I had been working on this other film for years, yeah. you know, so I had, you know, it was just very an interesting time. And because it, it sort of had, I was so caught up with that one emotionally that we almost, we really put down 137 shots for yeah. about a year um, to complete that film. And I had a, another great editor here in uh, Ojai named Sean Keenan who helped on it. Oh, yeah. A number, sure. of, a number of community members who lent their footage because, of course, at the time, everyone was making a, a fire film. Yeah. Um, but we were eventually able to gather all that footage and, and really sort of make, um, you know, there are a lot of beautiful, pe- you know, pieces artist artist pieces about that fire but i feel that that film sort of really became the uh, definitive archive one. yeah exactly and that's what a film is and whether it's 137 shots or burning ojai is it's a time capsule or a cultural we're, document yes we're, we're storing a time and place you know that's yes. worth storing and remembering and in today's day and age where the news cycle moves you know at an instant, you know, one yes. frame at a time, pretty much um, storing these really major yeah. things is, is super important. Like 137. We're like goldfish. We forget things so quickly. Yep, exactly. The uh, the collective memory in America is like a day. Like so, a so, so storing these things and, and that's ultimately as a filmmaker, you know, sort of what I really believe in and what are the moments that are worth storing and capturing the emotions and the people of that time and place so they're not forgotten and so we can refer back to them. So when my daughter Mae is, you know, 20 years old, we can say this is what happened when you were one month old, you know, and because uh, time sort of blunts our memories and it's the same thing with 137 shots. You saw it disappear from the Cleveland memory real quick, you know, Uh, and a lot of because, you know, on purpose, people didn't want to Absolutely. remember that. You know, but that one is really worth, whoa, 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 this is something that happened that we need to store and take note of. Yeah, and refer back to mm-hmm. and teach. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what's, uh, I'm excited to, to learn about your 
next projects? What do you? So we've got a, a documentary production company, Make It Plain. Uh, we've got a number of things on the slate that we've been developing for years. You know, I think as a journalist and, and a filmmaker, generally the projects that I'm working on take years to develop because yeah. that's what it takes to garner the access and really get to know the story. Um, one I'm really excited about is about this uh, historic black baseball league in New Orleans mm -hmm. that has been playing baseball since really right after the Civil War. You know, and in New Orleans um, are the oldest free black communities in America, Creole. Congo Square. You know, so Sundays was always a very sacred day, and they started playing baseball in the 1860s, this black league, and it was actually integrated for about 40 years, from 1870 mm -hmm. to 1910, and then it desegregated and uh, became the Negro Leagues for 30 or 40 years, and they're still playing today. It's sort of the remaining, the clearest remaining remnant of historic black baseball in America. And I was an elementary school teacher in New Orleans before I went to grad school. So when I was teaching third grade, my uh, students would be like, Mike, you, you gotta, or Mr. Milano, you gotta come to the baseball game on Sunday to see our dads play. And it's, you know, uh, kids from 18 to adults from 65 playing this baseball league. And it's just, it is such a scene and a confluence of New Orleans culture. I mean, the second line start from these games on Sundays, the Mardi Gras Indians are there, there's Crawford, there's music. So I've been following that story for that a while. sounds fun. And what it really is, is a reminder of what sports is capable of. What sports the is really all The community that gets built around it. Absolutely. A respite from the adversity of life. And nowhere is life's adversity sort of more apparent than in New Orleans. You know, yeah. whether it be the ground disappearing beneath their feet or the vanishing sort of middle class uh, or all of the challenges they face in that region, specifically the black community. So this is a reminder of... You know, what sports is all about in an age where I would argue as a former athlete, they've just completely lost the thread of what sports is about in the college and professional yeah. level with this the grotesque influx of money. Um, so for me, that piece is like this is this is what it's all about. Um, and of course, championing um, and advocating for this community in this baseball league. So that's one we've got work we're working on. Um, we've got a number of other exciting projects. Okay. I've got a really big story. We won't. Yeah, okay. thank you so much. It's like, we got to do this again soon. Yeah, the rest really, are top secret for the moment, but they'll yeah. be coming soon so we can talk about them then. And uh, Yeah, well, we'll definitely follow up, Mike. Thank you so much for coming in. You've been very generous with your time, and what a wonderful discussion. And urge everyone to check out this film, 137 Shots. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Brett Bradigan here. Just thinking out loud. After my talk with Mike, I reflected a lot on my own history with law enforcement and the time that I myself was arrested and beaten. And I feel like easily it could have gone very badly that I could have been shot. It was just a quiet day. I was working on campus at University of Colorado at Boulder. Coming back from my job, I think I had a night class, so I was going to get home, I was going to get something to eat, and then get back on campus. When I came to the Quad, which it's really one of the most gorgeous universities in the world, UC Boulder, there was a police tape all the way around it, which meant I would have to walk about half a mile out of my way. It had already been a long day, and I saw what was going on, they were playing frisbee golf on the course and they were like filming a commercial and I thought well I'll just sneak through um, as they're shooting the other angles and no one will ever know unfortunately there did know there was 
six or seven cops underneath the elm tree on the other side saw me coming, started chasing after me, and I decided to run. I just didn't see what I was doing wrong. When I came to the other side of the tape, I defiantly broke it and it started create, creating a crowd and I felt like the cops had to save face so they started beating me down with their truncheons and cuffing me face down in the dirt and I was a bit scared and starting to get claustrophobic so I, I bit one of the officers and uh, not that I'm proud of it it led to about six months of legal shenanigans I ended up being charged with a minor offense and serving a suspended sentence and a hundred and some hours of community service. But it could have gone bad. It was a felony assault and I could have been charged with a felony assault and ended up doing like 10 years. So I don't know if I weren't white, it could have been completely different outcome. So I, I understand to some degree my privilege for one but also how easily things can go wrong. In this particular case, Mike's documentary, the precipitating event was a car backfiring. There weren't even shots fired. But because police is such a very anxious job, you never know where danger's gonna come and from which direction, they reacted how they felt appropriately and started pursuing the vehicle. And it just didn't end well. In my situation, it did end well, because obviously I'm here talking to you. In any, any event, that's it. Brett Bradigan, just thinking out loud. And uh, that's it for this episode. We'll keep an ear out for you.